1: God stopped up the places where the water had been gushing out from under the earth. He also closed up the sky, and the rain stopped. For 150 days, the water slowly went down. Genesis
0: chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, Contemporary English Version Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're very glad to be with you today as we continue the series we recently started on Anchor by Truth. We are calling this series, 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know. In the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. And he is the one picking the facts that we are covering in this series. R.D., what is the central theme of this series? We have done many series on Anchored by Truth, and I'm sure we've covered way more than ten facts throughout that many series. So, why now try to cherry-pick just ten facts out of the thousands or tens of thousands of facts that are important to the Christian faith?
2: Well, I would also like to say hello to all the Anchored by Truth listeners who are joining us here today. We're really grateful for each and every one of you who would spend some time with us, and we just want to let you know that we're grateful for your commitment to the Bible and your commitment to developing a stronger and more sincere Christian faith. You know, last time on Anchored by Truth, I joked, well, semi-joked, that I'm not sure that a series that's entitled A Thousand Facts You Need to Know would be very appealing to most listeners. Most people, including me, do a better job of learning new information when we can focus on just a few things at a time. And for most of the people, the facts that we are covering in this series will be new information, although in one way or another we've touched on a lot of them somewhere in possibly another Anchored by Truth series. But for a lot of the people who hear them, we know this is new information. So we want to give people just a few select facts, 10 facts, that hopefully will allow them to focus on those facts, because all of these facts demonstrate important things about the Christian faith. The theme of this series is to help people know how they can be sure that their faith, the Christian faith, is a faith that is built on a solid foundation, not on shifting sand.
0: You're alluding to Jesus' admonition that is recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 47 through 49. Jesus said, Anyone who comes and listens to me and obeys me is like someone who dug down deep and built a house on solid rock. When a flood came and the river rushed against the house, it was built so well that it didn't even shake. But anyone who hears what I say and doesn't obey me is like someone whose house wasn't built on solid rock. As soon as the river rushed against that house, it was smashed to pieces, unquote.
2: Yes. I mean, today there is a river of misinformation that is flowing throughout our culture. And quite often that river of misinformation is specifically targeted at Christian houses. Because we are flooded with messages from our popular culture that the Bible isn't trustworthy. And that in those rare cases where the Bible gets it right, it's just pure coincidence. That just happened once or twice, but it's certainly not true, the Bible as a whole. Now, the flood of misinformation, that river of disinformation, they won't collapse the houses of all Christians, but they'll collapse enough that we really need to take action to counter them. We need for Christians to begin checking the foundation of their faith house and ensure that it is built on a solid foundation. And of course,
0: the foundation of Christianity is faith. But faith does not mean believing things that are at odds with reality. That's one of the lies that Satan loves to spread. That faith is like a leap into the dark where we must just trust that someone will be there to catch us. That's not faith. That's foolishness. Real faith is examining a particular truth claim, analyzing it carefully, and making an informed decision to place our trust in something. Notice that in Jesus' story, he noted that the person who built the house that withstood the river and the flood had dug deep. I'm afraid not many contemporary Christians dig deep these days into the intellectual foundation of our faith.
2: I agree. And that's a problem, and that's the big reason I wanted to do this series. The Bible is one grand saga that tells the story of creation, fall, and redemption. And when God inspired the various writers to write their particular part of the story, He made sure that they always contributed to that main narrative. Now, it's been said that if you know what you're looking for, you can find Jesus on every page of the Bible. Well, it is absolutely certain that you can find Jesus in every book of the Bible. The saga of creation, fall, and redemption, that's what ties the entire Bible together, and that's what makes it a unified work about the ultimate unifier. You know, we praise people who bring different groups together, or cities, or sometimes you might even have someone who can bring nations together. But there is only one person who has ever brought heaven and earth together, and that is Jesus. But we can't appreciate Jesus' redemptive and unifying role if we don't know about the background of the Grand Saga, and if we don't know how the individual episodes of that story fit into the larger narrative.
0: We especially need to know the larger story, but we also need to know how the individual components of our faith fit into that larger story. And we especially need to know how to defend the essentials of our faith so that we can withstand the river of opposition in which the Church stands today. And certainly in our day and time, that river starts on the slope of deep time and evolution because that's the water that challenges the historicity of Genesis and, by extension, the historicity of the Bible itself. Some Christians contend that we can abandon the historicity of the opening chapters of Genesis while retaining our confidence in the balance of Scripture. But that's like trying to keep the water in the lake when you let the leak in the dam go unaddressed.
2: The simple fact is that saving faith must be coupled with knowledge. Of course, the knowledge that you require for saving faith is very modest at first. We just have to know that we are all sinners and that Jesus has saved sinners by a sacrificial and atoning death. But if we think that that's all we need to know to persevere in faith, we're only fooling ourselves. Trying to grow our faith without developing our understanding of its content and its context, that's like trying to grow a garden but never giving any of your plants water or fertilizer.
0: I heard you once say that giving kids faith without knowledge is like putting out jewelry on the sidewalk. It won't be in place very long.
2: And that's why the facts that we are featuring in this series are so important. They're by no means all that Christians need to know, but they're a good start for helping Christians shore up the foundation of their faith house. We started out by showing that the conventional view of a billions-of-years-old Earth and universe, which is very distinctly at odds with the Bible, does not possess the scientific support that most people assume that it does. Now, in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, we demonstrated that the Bible's contention that at one point in history, there was a flood that engulfed the entire world, we pointed out that that biblical account also possesses substantial scientific support. And one of the pieces of evidence that we cited was that we find fossils of marine creatures in the Himalayas, including on Mount Everest, which is the highest mountain in the world. Well, today we want to go a little farther with talking about the fossil evidence and show that the fossil evidence, contrary to the popular belief, does not lend any support to the evolutionary hypothesis. To the contrary, when you examine the fossil evidence carefully, the fossil evidence that is found around the world is a profound problem for evolution.
0: So... Fact number four, out of the ten facts every Christian needs to know, is that the fossil record does not support evolution. In fact, the fossil record helps demonstrate the reliability of the book of Genesis. Do I have that right? Yes. And I'm sure you have some lines of evidence that you want to cite to support this fourth fact. Where do you want to start?
2: Well, there are more lines of evidence that support the fact that the fossil record is problematic for the evolutionary hypothesis than we have time to discuss in just one show. But for today, I want to very briefly discuss just three lines of evidence. The first line of evidence I want to talk about is what is often termed the Cambrian Explosion. The second line of evidence is the complete absence of transitional fossils between taxonomic groups And the third line of evidence is what is sometimes called ephemeral markings.
0: Sounds like we have a lot to get into, so we better get started. There doesn't seem to be uniformity in the dating of the Cambrian period, but it's normally considered to have been a period in geological history that was over 500 million years ago. Common dates have the Cambrian period lasting from around 570 million years B.C. to around 530 million years B.C., Now, we should say that these time frames are the time frames that are ascribed by conventional, secular, geologists, and paleontologists. They obviously are nowhere near the biblical time frames.
2: Yes, and that's one of the points that we need to remind everybody about today. The Bible tells us that the Earth and the universe are around 6,500 years old. Conventional science says that the universe is 14.5 billion years old and that the Earth itself is 4.5 billion years old.
0: Not much harmony between those views,
2: is there? No, there is not. And in this first episode of this series, we took on the whole notion of deep time, and so anybody who wants to understand that discussion, they can go and get that episode of Anchored by Truth and just listen to it for themselves. And they will begin to understand from that episode Deep time just does not exist. Now for today, the point that we need to make is that conventional scientists view the fossil record as a record of the passage of time, whereas biblical geologists and scientists view the fossil record as a snapshot in time. Conventional science believes that the fossil record was built up over hundreds of millions of years. But biblical scientists believe the fossil record was created almost exclusively during the Genesis flood that lasted just a little over a year, and that year was about 4,500 years ago.
0: Again, not much harmony between those two views. But as we have pointed out, evolutionists must have billions or at least hundreds of millions of years available for random mutations to take life from inanimate, randomly colliding atoms to biologists, pondering how those undirected collisions produce them and their ideas. No billions of years, no biologists.
2: And one of the problems, for those who want to believe that unintelligent molecules turn into enormously intelligent molecular chemists, is the Cambrian explosion. Briefly put, one of the big problems for evolution is that during this purported Cambrian period, Almost all of the major phyla that we know about today appeared very suddenly in the fossil record.
0: A phylum is a taxonomic classification level that is between the kingdom level and the class level. Human beings are part of the class of mammals. Mammals are in turn the phylum chordata. Chordata simply refers to animals that have a spine or backbone.
2: Right. And there's not uniform agreement on how many phyla there are in the animal kingdom, but common numbers that are tossed around is about 35 to 40 phyla are present in the animal kingdom. There's also not uniform agreement on how many of those phyla appeared during the Cambrian explosion. But most classifiers agree that at least 20 of those phyla appeared during the Cambrian explosion, and some say that as many as 35 appeared. Now, the problem for evolutionists is when they look at the Precambrian strata, they don't find any precursors to those phyla. Furthermore, in the supposed half-billion years that have elapsed since the Cambrian, there are no new phyla that make an appearance that can be traced back to those phyla known from the Cambrian. Now, we have discovered the existence of brand-new phyla, very infrequently, but we have discovered them, But the ones that are discovered don't contain any link to any of the phyla that were already known, and there are no evolutionary links known among the phyla of the Cambrian period.
0: Just to remind our listeners, the evolutionary hypothesis says that all life on Earth came from a common ancestor that first appeared hundreds of millions of years ago. Then, over time, this single ancestor evolved gradually through numerous beneficial mutations into all the species we see. If this hypothesis is true, then the sudden appearance of any phyla in the fossil record is problematic, much less the sudden appearance of two dozen or more when there are also no known ancestors for any of them.
2: So the sudden appearance of multiple phyla, many different phyla, all of which are so fully developed that they are almost identical to their modern counterparts is a real challenge for evolution. If evolution were true, the Precambrian strata should be brimming with their hypothetical ancestors, but those strata are not.
0: But the collection of all these distinct and fully formed phyla in the Cambrian strata poses no problem for the biblical claim. The Cambrian strata is simply a large collection of animals that was buried in the early days of the Genesis flood. Since that was over 4,500 years ago, it's no big surprise that Cambrian representatives look very similar to their current counterparts. And since the Bible tells us that God created all the various kinds of animals fully formed and fully functional, the absence of hypothetical ancestors is exactly what you should expect. So, this situation also helps point to the second line of evidence you want to discuss, that the fossil record as a whole, even beyond the Cambrian period, contains no convincing transitional
2: fossils. Exactly. And it's not just that there are no transitional fossils that are intermediate between the Cambrian phyla and their ancestors, but there are no transitional fossils that are intermediate anywhere in the fossil record. This was true in Charles Darwin's day, and he recognized the problem. Darwin famously acknowledged that the lack of transitional fossils was one of the principal objections that could be lodged against his theory of evolution. He wrote that in The Origin of Species, the book that launched it all. It's just that in Darwin's day, Darwin thought that the fossil record deficiency would be cured over time.
0: Darwin wrote, quote, Why, if species have descended from other species by insensibly fine gradations, do we not everywhere see innumerable transitional forms? Why is not all nature in confusion, instead of the species being, as we see them, well defined? He also wrote But as by this theory innumerable transitional forms must have existed, why do we not find them embedded in countless numbers in the crust of the earth?
2: But the absence of transitional forms in the fossil record has never improved. In his very famous book, Algeny, Jeremy Rifkin said, I quote now, Actually, the discrepancy between the theory and the fact only begins with the Cambrian period. It turns out that our paleontologists have been unable to find a single convincing intermediate or transitional form linking the various life forms. Close quote.
0: Also, David Kitts, a professor of geology at the University of Oklahoma, said, quote, Evolution requires intermediate forms between species, and paleontology does not provide them. Unquote. Stanley Stephen, in his well known work, Macroevolution, summed up the problems with the fossil record by stating, quote, the known fossil record fails to document a single example of gradual evolution accomplishing a major morphologic transition and hence offers no evidence that the gradualistic model can be valid,
2: And this absence of transitional fossils is particularly glaring because if there was any direct evidence for evolution, it would have to come from fossils. Dr. Pierre P. Grasset, who was one of the world's greatest living biologists, wrote a book called Evolution of Living Organisms. And in that book, Grasset reminded his fellow scientists that, I quote, The process of evolution is revealed only through fossil forms. A knowledge of paleontology is, therefore, a prerequisite. Only paleontology can provide the evidence of evolution and reveal its course or mechanisms. In other words, what Grasse is saying is that there is no scientific evidentiary mechanism that can make up for the lack of transitional forms in the fossil record. Without those transitional forms being present in the fossil record, there is, simply put, no direct evidence that evolution has occurred. But this most certainly does not mean that the fossil record is silent on the debate between the biblical and secular perspectives on the history of life on this planet. To the contrary, the fossil record strongly points to the reliability of the scriptural account.
0: What are you thinking about now?
2: Well, the third line of evidence that we want to mention today that supports our fourth fact the fact that the fossil record does not support evolution is the presence of what are called ephemeral markings these are raindrop marks ripple marks or animal tracks that are at the boundaries of paraconformities because the presence of these ephemeral markings at the boundaries of paraconformities show that the upper rock layer has been deposited immediately after the lower rock layer, and that eliminates the possibility for these millions of years between the deposition of the two layers.
0: Paraconformities are also known as flat gaps. According to Creation Ministries International, these, quote, are contacts within sedimentary sequences where layers of sediment representing many millions of years are said to be missing. Flat gaps are remarkably flat, and the sedimentary layers on either side of the gap are parallel and relatively thin compared with their enormous geological extent. In other words, paraconformities are sedimentary layers within the Earth where two different layers are in immediate contact, but there is no evidence of any time gap being present between the deposition of the layers.
2: Yes, conventional geological time frames would say that there were millions of years between the time one layer was deposited and then the layer above it was laid down. But if that time gap was real, the lower layer would exhibit a considerable amount of erosion. But there are many places around the world where these two layers, supposedly millions of years apart, show no evidence of erosion. They show no evidence of this supposed time gap. And one line of evidence that demonstrates this is the presence of millions of dinosaur footprint fossils around the world. Think about it for just a second. Think about the conditions that would be necessary for the fossil record to retain a footprint. Not retain the dinosaur foot, but retain just the footprint of the dinosaur.
0: The animal would have had to step into a soil patch that was soft enough to form the impression, and conditions would have to be stable enough for that impression to partially dry. But shortly thereafter, another layer of sediment would have to be deposited, which essentially filled the footprint and then encased it in some kind of protective coating, a coating strong enough to survive millennia of subsequent erosion action. The point you're getting at is that the presence of dinosaur and other animal footprints in rocks that are supposed to be ancient means that the geological formation activity was occurring very quickly.
2: Exactly. The normal presumption is that the fossil record was laid down over tens or hundreds of millions of years, but the presence of dinosaur tracks in stone shows that the fossil record was far more likely created in a much shorter period of time, a time period that is consistent with the Genesis Flood. In 2012, Ray Stanford, who is an amateur dinosaur track enthusiast, noticed a small outcrop of sandstone on a hill in Greenbelt, Maryland. It was the same color of sandstone in which he had previously discovered a small dinosaur track. Well, they dug out this outcrop, and it turned out to be part of a two-square-meter slab that contained the highest concentration of tracks anywhere in the world. It contained not only tracks of several different kinds of dinosaurs, but also tracks from a crocodile and a mammal. This slab of dinosaur, crocodile, pterosaur, and mammal footprints provides dramatic evidence that supports the biblical account of creation and the flood. According to Michael Ord, who is a scientist with Creation Ministries International, the fact that dinosaur and mammal prints are found on the same slab goes against the evolutionary idea that mammals largely diversified after the dinosaurs. Rather, it distinctly shows that the mammals and the dinosaurs lived at the same time.
0: This is perfectly consistent with the Bible, because all animals were created during the six days of creation and had diversified across the earth before the global Genesis flood began. He also says that the rapid formation and preservation of the prints in days or hours is consistent with the rapid processes that occurred during the flood. The existence of footprints means that the animals were alive, suggesting that the tracks were made as the floodwaters were rising and before water covered all the earth. The prints likely represent the efforts of the animals to escape the ongoing inundation of the rising waters.
2: Ephemeral markings in the fossil record show that the fossil record was created far more rapidly than is typically assumed by conventional science. Now let's remind everyone of the reason that this is important. Conventional science asserts That the fossil record contains evidence that supports evolution but the three lines of evidence that we have discussed today helps demonstrate that it doesn't
0: the sudden appearance of numerous well defined and distinct animal phyla during the cambrian explosion with no evidence of any ancestors that preceded them argues strongly against common ancestry and the fact that many of these phyla are almost identical to their modern counterparts casts considerable doubt on whether any evolution has occurred in the supposed intervening half billion years. The absence of transitional forms throughout the fossil record has been called, the trade secret of paleontology, because it argues strongly against evolution rather than for it.
2: And the existence of dinosaur footprints and other ephemeral markings that are found around the world shows that different sedimentary layers can be deposited very quickly, even in vast quantities. And this is perfectly consistent with laboratory findings that moving water can sort materials very efficiently as those materials are settling. Now, given the vast sedimentary layers that sometimes cross continents This speaks to the previous occurrence of at least one massive flood, and that massive flood would be consistent with the flood that is described in chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Genesis.
0: The fourth fact, like the three before it, are important because they provide support for the Bible's truth. But they also demonstrate that many of the assumptions that circulate so widely in our culture do not possess the credibility that is so often assumed. The Bible says the truth will set us free, but for truth to do that, we must be willing to diligently pursue the truth, even when we are one of the few who are doing so. This sounds like a great time to go to the Lord in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our kids who are back in school, and many of whom struggle when taking tests. Pray regularly for them because the Bible assures that God hears and responds to the sincere prayers of his faithful children, regardless
1: of their age. Prayer Before Taking a Test Heavenly Father, you have been so good and kind to me. I praise your name because you are worthy to be praised. You rule the universe. Yet you love us so much that you care about the parts of even our daily lives that trouble us. Thank you for being a merciful Father who carries our burdens. Lord, you know I have a test coming that has been weighing on my heart. I know that tests are a part of learning and education. You know so well that tests can be very difficult for some of your children, including me. Lord. I pray that you would help me with this test. I pray you would help me to prepare effectively for the test. Help me to take advantage of all the books, study aids, and guides that I can find. Direct me to my fellow students, teachers, or friends who have an understanding in this area and who can assist me. Please defeat any tendencies I have towards discouragement or fear. Because these are the tools of the enemy. When I am in the test, please send the Holy Spirit to bring to my mind all that I have learned. Keep me calm and help me to focus on simply doing my best. My joy and hope are in Jesus. I pray and give thanks in His precious name. Amen.
0: We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where
2: we're not perfect, but our boss is.